Well, please take your Bibles and turn to 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1, and while you're looking that up, I'll say what a privilege it is to be with you again here in Claremont. It's hard to believe a whole year has gone by since I was here last time, and I've been looking forward to being with you again. You gave me such a warm welcome last time, I decided to come back, and uh, this time I brought my wife Marlene with me, and I'm glad she's been able to be with me on this trip. Also wanted to mention before I start the, uh, uh, the new Cornerstone magazine, this is the inaugural issue, the January-February issue of this year. New magazine's been started this year. I noticed in the March-April issue, this conference was in uh, one of the conference notices. But this, con this uh, magazine is edited by David Dunlap of uh, Florida, and uh, it contains uh, uh, articles of uh, encouragement, uh, Bible teaching, and also news and information of things going on in assemblies uh, mostly around North America. So if you'd like to get this magazine, it comes bi-monthly. I've brought a sign-up sheet along with me and would be happy to take your name and address. If you'd like to just take this sample and look it over and decide later whether you'd like to get it, uh, you can go on the website and give us your name and address that way as well. There's no subscription price for the magazine. Uh, it's simply supported by gifts uh, and donations of interested parties. So please, I'll leave it out here when I finish uh, the message here and sometime during the weekend, uh, stop by and pick up a copy for yourself. 2 Timothy chapter 1, we'll begin reading uh, in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, according to the promise of life which is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my dearly beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God, whom I serve from my forefathers with pure conscience, that without ceasing I have remembrance of thee in my prayers night and day, greatly desiring to see thee, being mindful of thy tears, that I may be filled with joy, when I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in thee, which dwelt first in thy grandmother Lois and thy mother Eunice, I am persuaded that in thee also. Wherefore I put thee in remembrance that thou stir up the gift of God, which is in thee by the putting on of my hands. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God, who hath saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began, but is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who has abolished death, and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Whereunto I am appointed a preacher, and an apostle, and a teacher of the Gentiles. For the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Hold fast the form of sound words, which thou hast heard of me in faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. That good thing which was committed unto thee, keep by the Holy Ghost which dwelleth in us. This thou knowest, that all they which are in Asia be turned away from me, 
of whom are Phagellus and Hermogenes. The Lord give mercy unto the house of Onesiphorus, for he oft refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chain. But when he was in Rome, he sought me out very diligently and found me. The Lord grant unto him that he may find mercy of the Lord in that day. And in how many things he ministered unto me at Ephesus, thou knowest very well. Second Timothy is a letter both of challenge and encouragement for the last days. It is a letter that warns us of the need to fully possess and faithfully pass on the truth. To fully possess the truth and to faithfully pass on the truth. Another has said the letter is an exhortation to be steadfast in ministry and sound in doctrine. It forms a group of letters that have been classified by Bible students over the years as the pastoral epistles, 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus. And, and first in, uh, First Timothy and Titus, it, it emphasizes the, the people to whom Timothy and Titus would minister to. In other words, Timothy and Titus in those letters, respectively, were given instructions as to uh, how they should minister to people that were under their care, the people that they were ministering to. But Second Timothy is different in this respect that it is directed to Timothy itself himself, rather. It is a more personal letter that challenges to Timothy. We can all read these epistles, all of them, First and Second Timothy and Titus, and we can, after thinking about them a little while, realize that they are directed to us as well, that we are Timothys and we are Tituses, that these letters have a direct personal application to us living in this day and age. Now, the historical and circumstantial uh, references in the pastoral, pastoral epistles are not found in the book of Acts, but are thought to have uh, been written after the history of the book of Acts. You may recall, as the book of Acts comes to a close, Paul uh, has an imprisonment. It was in prison. Uh, he was released from that imprisonment and was able to circulate in ministry for a time, but he was rearrested by the Romans and eventually sent back to Rome. And it was uh, from that second uh, imprisonment uh, that he suffered a martyr's death. And it was during that imprisonment that Paul writes this second letter uh, to Timothy. And we'll see that he's writing in a time of departure from the truth of God, he is writing about a time of departure in the, uh, from the truth of God. Uh, he challenges the, Timothy uh, as he himself would minister that, that no compromise is permitted to the believer. That even though he might find himself in a time of general departure, when many are turning away from the truth, the believer is not permitted to join those going against the word of God but is called to stand firm with the word of God. Faithfulness amidst failure are Paul's words to Timothy and to us as well. For the day and age in which we are living, generally speaking in the professing church, is very much like the day and age that Paul himself found himself in. As many had turned away from the truth of God, it was a call to be faithful. It's not easy to be faithful. It's not easy to go against the grain. 
When the crowd is going one way, it's easy to go with them and not go the other way. Now that rule doesn't apply on the freeways around LA, I noticed this afternoon. It's much tougher going with the crowd because the roads were clogged. It was the other lane going the other way that I was looking at longingly and wishing I was going uh, against the crowd. That would have been easier. But you know the point, you get the point. To stand against what's popular to stand against what everybody else is doing takes a great deal of courage. And it takes men and women who are committed to the truth of God to stand. And this is the, this is the spirit of this little letter, to be faithful amidst uh, unfaithfulness. Well, this evening I thought we might look at a few general characteristics of the letter, and then uh, perhaps tomorrow we'll get into some of the detail, particularly of this first chapter. The one thing we notice about this letter, I suppose its most outstanding characteristic is that we could call it a final letter, a final letter. It's the last words of Paul, the apostle of Jesus Christ. He tells us right in the letter uh, that he himself knew, as verse 6 of chapter 4 says, For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. I fought a good fight. I finished my course. I've kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give to me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. It's the last words of Paul, the apostle of Jesus Christ. He's sitting in a Roman prison, and the certainty of his own execution looms before him. It's surprising how calm the man seems. There is no panic call for prayer. There is no panic call for release. There is no panic call to uh, start a letter-writing campaign and, and ask for help from the government. He was a man who knew himself firmly in the midst of the will of God. And he knew his time had come to an end. And he writes for the next generation. He writes for the post-apostolic era, the era in which we are living here and now, the era in which there would be no apostles, those specially chosen messengers of God to communicate the truth of the word of God. It would be handed to the next generation and the generation after that and the generation after that. And each would be required to take the truth of God. It was the last words of the, the apostle. William Kelly uh, puts it this way. He says, it is the last written word of the apostle, which imparts peculiar earnestness, gravity, and tenderness to all that he has to say. D. Edmund Hebert uh, makes this comment. He says, it constitutes Paul's dying testimony and his parting appeal to Timothy and to the church. Perhaps humanly speaking, we could say that Paul... Paul was among, if not, the greatest man who ever lived. And these are his last words uh, to the world. It's a final letter. But it's also what we could say uh, is a friendly letter. It's a friendly letter. It was a letter between two friends. Uh, notice, for instance, in verse 2 of, of chapter 1 that we read, it says, To Timothy, my dearly beloved son. 
uh, down to verse 4, he says, Greatly desiring to see thee, being mindful of thy tears, that I may be filled with joy. Verse 5, when I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in thee, which dwelt first in thy grandmother Lois and thy mother Eunice, I am persuaded that in thee also. This is a letter between a heartfelt friends. Verse 1 of chapter 2, thou therefore my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. We go over to chapter 3 and we notice verse 10. He says, but thou hast fully known my doctrine. Manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, charity, patience, uh, and so on. Uh, verse uh, 14, continue thou in the things which thou hast learned uh, be, uh, and, and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them, and that from a child thou hast known the Holy Scriptures. Uh, th these were two men who had a personal relationship with one another. This letter is not so much all uh, doctrine, although it, it includes some tremendous doctrine, but it showcases the dynamics that go on behind the scenes of the work of God. Here was an older man and a younger man working together. Here was an older man investing in the generation that was to follow. You know, one of the privileges of getting older, and there are some privileges of getting older, you know, uh, you get to be more grouchy. I've, I've been enjoying that so much, you know. <laughs> really, if I was known, known it was this much fun, I would have got older long ago. But, um, but you know, one of, the, one of the privileges of getting older is you start to look to the younger generation. And, and you start to think in terms of equipping them. Will they be ready to take the challenge? Will they be ready to serve their generation? Now, sometimes they scare the daylights out of me, to be honest with you, you know. But I suppose the generation that preceded me had the same uh, uh, tre trembling moments. But it is a wonderful thing to invest in the next generation. And we see this right through Scripture. Uh, really, in the Old Testament days, we think of an example like, like Moses and Joshua. I find it interesting to read when Joshua first appears on the scene. Now, we know, of course, the, the work that Joshua did after Moses died, but we read of Joshua back early in the Pentateuch, and we find him just, just there. He's just mentioned, and he's just sort of standing there, and he's just observing, and, and he's doing tasks assigned to him uh, by Moses, that Joshua uh, became a great man among God's people because he studied as a student under Moses' leadership, and he was willing to be a servant. And, and this is really the key to Christian ministry and effective, uh, effective life for God is be willing to be a servant. That, that as they say, the way up is the way down. Uh, that we want to be those willing to serve. And so I challenge young people wherever I go now to, to rise to the challenge of, of recognizing that the responsibilities are going to fall upon you in the church of God. And will you be ready to take that challenge? Will you be equipped to handle that? And you begin by being a servant. And so Paul and Timothy had a wonderful relationship. They learned side by side in service. Now we talk a great deal today about things like discipleship and about mentoring and, and these kinds of things. And these are, are somewhat useful terms uh, to a point. But, but really, if you look at the pattern in Scripture, you see that... that, that Men and women learned from one another while they were involved in active service. In other words, they, they, didn't have, they didn't have 
mentoring classes. You know, Monday night we're going to have a mentoring class. No, they were out doing the work. And as they were involved in the work, they learned. This is why the assembly is such a wonderful place to learn, to develop. Now, we can't learn and develop unless we're here. But as we're here, willing to do what we feel we can do, we learn and we grow. And as we take opportunities that come our, uh, across our pathway, we learn and grow as we work together one with another. And that was the case of Paul uh, and Timothy. We find in the Philippian uh, epistle is a tremendous uh, commendation by Paul uh, of, uh, of, uh, of Timothy, this, this younger man. Let me just read these words to you. They're, they're well known. So, uh, Philippians chapter 2, verse 19, it says, But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timotheus shortly unto you, that I also may, may be of good comfort when I know your state. Now notice this, this is the commendation of Paul, the apostle of Jesus Christ, of Timothy. For I have no man like-minded who will naturally care for your state, for all seek their own, not the things which are Jesus Christ's. But you know the proof of him, that as a son with the Father, he has served with me in the gospel." Timothy was highly commended by Paul, even though he was a younger man, even though he was a less experienced man. Paul says, I've got no one like-minded who will naturally care for your state. That Timothy had a great care for God's people, and he served God's people. Now, where did he learn that from? He learned that from watching Paul. He learned that from working with Paul. And so that's a challenge to all of us young and old. You see, as those of us who are getting older, we must realize that we're setting a pattern, aren't we? We're setting an example. And what are people seeing? What are the young people seeing as they look at our lives, as they look at our ministry? Are they seeing things that are commendable? Are they seeing things that you would like to see uh, duplicated in another person's life? Are they learning good lessons? Uh, as they listen to our conversation, as they see what we do and where we go and how we spend our money and how we spend our time? Are we really feeding the next generation? And then what about the next generation? Are, are, are you taking the lessons? Are you learning the lessons? Are you rising to the challenge? He said, Timothy rose to the challenge. Timothy took it and he followed closely Paul, uh, the apostle of Jesus Christ. I have no man like-minded who will naturally care for their st your state. All seek their own, and not the things which are Jesus Christ. It's a friendly letter. Farrar writes these words, he says, The very difference in their age, meaning Paul and Timothy, the very difference of their age, the very dissimilarity of their characters, but had made their love for each other more sacred and more deep. The ardent, impetuous, dominant character and intense purpose of the one, meaning Paul, found its complement and its response in the timid, yielding, retiring character of the other. And even though it seems that Paul and Timothy were completely different personality-wise, and different in age-wise, and different in experience, and different in maturity, and yet they work together hand in glove. You see, age is no barrier in the work of God. And this is how the church is built. This is how one generation learns from the next generation. This is why the church is still around today, 2,000 years after it was founded. 
that this method of one generation teaching another generation and so on and so forth, that here today we find ourselves confessing the very truth that was taught by the apostles. How is it that that's been preserved for 2,000 years? This system of one uh, teaching another. This is indeed a friendly letter between two friends in the work of God. Make friends, as the old hymn says, of God's children. Make those your close companions. Make those your heartfelt friends. Find your life, your fellowship among believers. It's a final letter. It's a, it's a friendly letter. It's a future letter. It's a future letter. Paul is looking beyond uh, the, the present time and into the future. Notice, for instance, chapter 3 and verse 1, it says, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. And then in chapter 4 and verse 3, he says, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. Paul was looking down through uh, history that was yet to occur. He's sitting here in a Roman prison. His own life and ministry has been, is going to be brought to a conclusion. He's fought the fight. He's finished the course that was set before him. And he's looking now in the generations to come. And he sees things that are going to happen. He knows that in the last days, it says perilous or difficult or trying times shall come. Now, we don't have time to look into the detail of chapter 3, but uh, that section there I suggest to you is describing not the world at large, but the professing church. For he says in verse, in verse 5, it says they will have a form of godliness, but will be denying the power thereof. In other words, Paul could see that there would be a false, corrupt church that is going to arise. And even the Lord himself taught that in the kingdom parables of Matthew 13, that there would be this false imitation church, and so the church has attracted counterfeits. And so we have today what, what we call the professing church, where people talk about God and Jesus and Christ, but it's absolutely full of false doctrine and corruption. It's filled with people who are opportunists and are in, quote, church for their own personal advancement. You know, religion can be big business, and it attracts people who like the perks of big business. And so the church, uh, Paul, the apostle, anticipated this. And this was his call, his call to stand to genuineness, his call to stand to adherence and faithfulness to the doctrines, to the truth of God as it was taught. And there would be a false church, and Paul's looking down, and he sees the, these corroding uh, influences that would come into the church. And this is his challenge, that there might be a purity of doctrine and a purity of, tru of truth. It's a future letter. And Paul describes the very things that we see. The time come when they will not endure sound doctrine. Sound doctrine. You know, one of the privileges you have in an assembly like this is its heritage and its present practice is firmly committed to the teaching of sound doctrine. When Paul uses this expression, and he uses it frequently through these epistles, he means not just orthodox doctrine, but he means uh, health-giving doctrine. That's really what the word sound means, healthy doctrine. 
You see, doctrine is not something that we hold merely in an academic or abstract or intellectual way. Doctrine is bound up, it's woven together with practical Christian living. True Bible doctrine is practical. And true practical ministry is based on Bible doctrine. And so Paul's call here, or warning here, is that the time is coming when they will not endure sound doctrine. And we see so-called churches today packed with people who are listening to absolute nonsense. Things that have nothing to do with the truth of God. And yet they claim to be going to church. They even claim to be Christian. They're turning their ears away from the truth. You see, sound, healthy doctrine builds us up to be spiritually healthy. It, it, it gives us a sense of the Word of God. It affects the conduct of our lives. It builds us up to be healthy and to be spiritually minded. That our lives might be brought into conformity to the word of God. But the time is coming. They will not endure sound doctrine. Notice what he says. He says, they shall after their own lusts, shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. Now, it's the listeners that have itching ears. And what he means by that is ears that need need to be catered to. They want to hear what they want to hear. They don't want to hear anything that's going to challenge them. They don't want to hear anything that's going to cramp their lifestyle. They only want to hear what makes them feel good and justifies whatever behavior they want to pursue. They have itching ears. It's really a medical condition. It's an unsound condition. It is an unhealthy condition in contrast with the health of sound doctrine. But notice what he says in verse 4, they shall turn away their ears from the truth. That's an act of their own will. They hear truth. They say, I don't want to listen to that anymore. And they might rationalize and they might justify it. And they might think that they're being intellectually consistent. And they say, I don't want to hear that. Notice what he says, what happens when you do that. They shall turn away their ears from the truth and then they shall be turned unto fables. In other words, they now lose control. They choose to reject the truth, and once they do that, then they will be turned. They won't be doing the turning. They will be turned to fables. They will now fall under the delusion of a lie. And so we have today people professing Christianity, and it has nothing to do with the truth of God. It is a, it is a future letter. It's a foreboding letter. And that is, there's a, there's, a, there's a warning in this letter. There's a warning in this letter. Uh, notice what he says, for example, uh, in verse 15 of chapter 1. He says, This thou knowest, that all they which are in Asia be turned away from me, of whom are Phagellus and Hermogenes. Uh, and, and then again we get to chapter 12 or chapter 3 in verse 12, and it says, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Uh, verse 13, But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, 
deceiving and being deceived. And then what we've already read here in chapter 4, uh, that they will depart from the truth, they will not endure sound doctrine. Again, D. Edmund Hebert writes these words, The hostility of the government towards Christianity had also cast an ominous cloud over Timothy as a Christian leader. He was exposed to fearful danger. Humanly speaking, the fury of the Neronian persecutions had left the church trembling on the brink of extinction. The Roman Empire was intolerant of secret societies, and it knew how to extinguish them. Only a clear vision of the divine destiny of the church could foresee any other end. In such an hour, to be prominent among the hated Christians might well mean that one was marked for destruction. For a timid soul, the prospects were terrifying. This was the environment under which they wrote, Paul wrote. It was a foreboding letter. There were hostile forces on every side, threatening, as Hebert says, the very extinction of the church. That to stand for Christ in the face of a hostile world required men and women of exceptional courage and commitment and men and women who saw things for as they really were. That they saw a Christ in glory, the head of the church, who would not fail. They knew that he was in the process of building his church and the gates of hell would not ultimately prevail against it. But it didn't mean the gates of hell wouldn't try. And it would be difficult to stand for Christ. This was no Sunday school picnic. This was no potluck supper with all of the great things that come with it. No, this was requiring men and women of real courage to stand in the face of the truth of God. If you've read much of church history, we see the church has passed through times like this. I was reading uh, earlier this year or late last year some uh, church history in, in, in England uh, in the middle part of the, uh, really, really, I suppose you would call it in the post-Puritan era, where, where people, were, people were burned at the stake for owning the Bible in their own language, for practicing believers' baptism, for gathering together with a, with, as a group and having the Word of God taught by an unlicensed preacher, that is, unlicensed by the, by the government, by the, by the Church of England. This was in England, of all places. Burned at the stake. Uh, it's hard to believe that such a thing would occur for owning a Bible. I mean, we, we've got Bibles coming out our ears. And yet those men and women stood firm for God. Paul writes here, and this is a, a foreboding letter, that, 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 that the Christian life needs to be taken seriously. We, we live in a part of the world and in an era of history in which the church has enjoyed unprecedented freedom and privileges. And we see signs, we see things happening that alarm us. We, we see things that are worrisome in the sense of, of the attitude of the world, the attitude of government, the philosophy uh, of, the, of, the, of public life. 
uh, in the West today. But nonetheless, at the present time, we, we enjoy enormous freedom. And how we need to exploit that and use that to our advantage uh, while the time remains. Uh, to be men and women who know the Word of God, who, who, who promote and teach the Word of God, uh, who live the Word of God, that we use our time wisely to build ourselves up in the Word of God, that we might have the same character as those of previous generations who stood in hostile environments and did not give in and did not compromise but stood firmly for Christ. This is a foreboding letter. Yea, all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer uh, persecution. It's a fighting letter. It's a fighting letter. Uh, Paul talks about the afflictions of the gospel. Uh, he talks about his chain. Uh, he talks about enduring hardness as a good soldier. He talks about enduring afflictions. It's obvious that there is a battle going on here. The world, the flesh, and the devil are an array against the child of God. Are we willing to rise to that challenge? Young people, let me, uh, let me remind you again of the challenge that comes to you for the next generation. You see, the world wants to allure you into compromise. The, the, the world wants to paint itself as being an, a, an attractive and satisfying place with its various pleasures and pastimes and amusements. And all it wants to do is to suck away the energy of your life and will leave you empty, broken, and miserable. And the sad fact is, is that, that many Christians, sadly, have squandered away their opportunity to do something significant for God in time. And they will suffer an enormous loss at the judgment seat of Christ. And so the challenge is to all of us, whether we are young and old, to rise to the occasion and accept the challenge. This is a fighting letter. Yes, there is going to be opposition. Yes, it is going to be difficult. Yes, there are going to be battles. It's not easy. We're not here simply to always enjoy ourselves and have a good time. But the work of God is serious business. Very quickly to close, it's a faithful letter. Uh, Timothy was called to be faithful. Uh, there were examples given of faithful men. There was examples of unfaithful men. Uh, Paul says they were looking for faithful men. It is full of faithful sayings. And finally, he concludes and says, the Lord is faithful. The Lord is faithful. Amidst unfaithfulness, and Paul saw a lot of it, a lot of betrayal, a lot of sadness. You know, he poured his life out in the work of Asia. He spent two years in Ephesus. One uh, letter, he says that all they in Asia heard the word of God. But here he says, all they in Asia have turned against me. Pretty sad. He poured his life into that region. There was probably a, 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 never a better taught people than the people of Asia. Ephesus, the Ephesian epistle. I mean, it's, it was just, just full of teaching. Paul poured his life in ministry. All they in Asia have turned against me. That's a sad reality. But Paul, uh, Paul knew that at the end of it all, the Lord is 
faithful. And while people might let us down, the Lord will never let us down. He'll never let us down. I'll never leave you or forsake you. Doesn't matter what your circumstance is, never, ever, ever for a moment, for a nanosecond, will the Lord abandon you. The Lord is faithful. And finally, it's a foundational letter. It sets the course of the post-apostolic character of the church. And what we mean by that is it, 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 it describes uh, what we need to know after the era of divine revelation was brought to a close. See, when the apostles were living, uh, the word of God was still being communicated to men. Paul was still communicating things that had never before been revealed. There was still ongoing divine revelation. But with the death of the apostles, when the apostles' ministry closed, so did the era of divine revelation. And there was no more divine revelation after the apostles died. And we live now in a post-apostolic era. And we have the completed word of God. The faith, as Jude says, was once for all delivered to the saints. The book of Revelation warns against either taking away from the book of this prophecy or adding to the book of this prophecy. We have a complete revelation from God, and we have every ground to reject uh, claims of post-apostolic revelation. This is why Mormonism collapses. There is no post-apostolic revelation. And it is in these books that Paul emphasizes again and again and again the importance of the word, the importance of the word, the importance of the word. Doctrine, sound doctrine, teaching the word, preaching the word. He, he, he challenges the church to be faithful to the word of God. And so it's good we're all gathered here together at a Bible conference. I can't think of a better place to be on a Friday night, to hear the word of God. And every time the word of God is opened and using all of our spare time that we can uh, to use it for the word of God, to inform and educate ourselves and learn the word of God. This is what, this would be, this is foundational for the church in the post-apostolic uh, era. Well, tomorrow morning we'll, we'll look a little bit at the, the tone of the letter from the opening greeting and some of the lessons to be gleaned uh, from chapter 1.